Hi, man. My name is Joey Tisdale, and I get to serve with our connecting team here, and I'm excited to be with you all today as, as we look at, at Christ's message to the church of Sardis. And so last week, Nathan covered uh, the church of Thyatira, and so this week we're going to look at Sardis, starting in Revelation 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. And so let me do this. I'm going to read the passage, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump right in. And so verse 1 says, To the angel of the church of Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, God, let that be us. I pray today that as we examine your word and your truth, that ultimately we would see what you're calling us to be who you want us to be, that you want us to be men who are alive and faithful and obedient and not dead. And so use this time to encourage us and to strengthen us and to make us more like you. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Well, my son just turned one in January, and uh, I am obviously in the, the learning curve of what it means to be a parent. And one of those things that I'm learning right now is vacations. Uh, my wife traveled a lot growing up with our family, and my family traveled a lot growing up. And so now we're looking at our son and going, how do we create a similar environment and atmosphere uh, of fun and travel for him? And so what I didn't realize is that when you become a parent, there's like this unspoken list uh, of like five to ten things of things that you're supposed to go do in places that you see, depending on who you are, where you're from, uh, that could change that list a little bit. Uh, some of the things I wrote down was just like, man, camping and fishing. I have a son, so obviously I, I'm inclined to go and do those things. But then what about like the Grand Canyon and going to the mountains, going to the beach? And if you're like the Griswolds, maybe you're going from Europe to Las Vegas. But you just love to travel. But there's one place out of all the places that you could go to as a family that kind of like takes the cake. It is the one place that in some ways, if you don't go, you're kind of judged as a parent. It's like, man, you haven't been there. That's the happiest place on earth. And that's it. It's Disneyland. That's a place that I'm thinking about right now that I'm going, man, that seems like the most family-friendly, inviting place that all families go. That It has this beautiful splendor. And you walk through the gates and you see the castle and you say, man, this place really must be the happiest place on earth. And for our kids, for our, for our little ones, they believe that this will be the happiest place on earth. That I'll get to meet all the people that I've seen on TV from Minnie to Mickey to Goofy, Cinderella, Dwarves, John Smith, all of them. But for us as parents, we may view Disney a little different than they do. It may not be the happiest place on earth, according to us. Why? Because when you walk around Disney, you know, the hours are, or the, the lines for the rides are an hour long. It's 95 to 100 degrees outside. Everything is way overpriced. You know, I can't, I can't pay $32 for the little, like, spray bottle fan combo that everybody's walking around with. I'm like, there's no way. But to our kids, this is a memory for a lifetime. 
because what they see is this is the happiest I will ever be in my life because really my dreams have come true. But for us as parents, we see Disney differently. Disney has this amazing reputation. It's the happiest place on earth. But for us, we don't think, man, that's where happiness is found. Why? Because we realize that Disney is not reality. We live in reality and Disney is somewhat of a facade that the castle that you see is, is only the structure that is meant to, to allure you in. It's meant to be attractive and aesthetically pleasing, but it's not actually what it says it is. Every night, the same, same people who play those characters, those workers, they will get rid of their costumes. They'll go home and they'll live the normal lives that they are. And they'll no longer live in this false reality, in this fa facade of, I'm a Disney character, but at home I'm something else. And I start there because I think that sometimes we live our spiritual lives portrayed like Disney. That they appear to be thriving and abundant and prosperous, but they're dead. We, we have this mere association with the things of God, but we have no relationship with Christ, that we put on a mask or we put on something to appear to be something that we're not. What I mean by that is, in some way, we may take part in a bunch of ministries or programs or events or things going on at the church or near the church or associated with the church, like a, your regions, your porch, your re-engaged, the equipped disciples, student ministries. But the reality is, is we have a fruitless faith. And so today we're going to talk about the church of Sardis, that, that Christ literally declares it has a name and it has a reputation of faith, but ultimately is dead. And so contextually, a couple of things about the, the church of Sardis, that it was uh, about 33 miles southeast of Thyatira that Nathan talked about last week. And what's really cool is that it was uh, about 1,500 feet above this valley, that it was on this Acropolis, that it, it already had somewhat of a majestic stature, a little splendor to it, that it's the city up on a hill, if you will, uh, which made it seem unconquerable. But some of the things they were known for is that there was a great wealth and luxury that they would dye wool, and uh, they were thought to be the first uh, city to coin money, to monetarily be a mint, uh, the first one in Asia Minor. Um, but that also came with some other things that they were soft and apathetic, especially towards immorality. And so we see a, a couple different things uh, that we can learn from the Church of Sardis. And I want to talk about three specifically today uh, that we can learn from Christ's message to Sardis. Point one being reputations don't bear fruit. The second one that faithfulness has no finish line. And the third being, we walk in his victory. That first one, uh, reputations don't bear fruit. That comes from chapter 3, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, that being Jesus, says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. The first thing I want to acknowledge is in this description of Jesus, and he who has the seven spirits of God, being the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and then the seven stars being what we see in Revelation 1.20, that it's, it's the angels of the churches, the seven churches that he's going to speak to. That this, this is our Savior. This is the Lord speaking to the church whom he loves deeply and he cares deeply about. And so as you, as you look, it says, Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you have a name and you're alive, but you're dead. And so one can immediately fall into the appropriate weight of Man, Jesus is admonishing and correcting, and it can feel discouraging to read that sentence. 
But what we have to understand is that that Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our Savior, looks at dead things and he says, hey, I bring dead things to life. And so while it's appropriate to, to acknowledge, man, that seems discouraging and kind of heavy, we also get to go and look. Jesus appropriately admonishes the church. He says, hey, you look alive, but you're dead. And so let us look at this, this passage specifically, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, with the context of, man, even though this church is dead, Jesus is the one who brings life into dead things. And so think about that statement. He says literally, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. What if I rephrase it this way? I know exactly who you are and what everybody else thinks of you. But regardless of what they say, I know you're dead. That's both heavy and bold that this reputation, it precedes them. But Christ looks at them and knows them for exactly who they are. They are dead, that their faith and their heart is dead, that the church there is fruitless. I think for me, it, make, uh, it immediately makes me think of job interviews. That In job interviews, you, you typically have to, to turn in references that they will call and follow up, do background checks to see, man, what was he like uh, as an employee at his previous role? And sometimes they'll uh, inquire of your friends that, man, who do you say that he is? You know, that my friends may say, man, Joey is this. This is who Joey is in his faithfulness or in his integrity or his character. But I think 10 years ago, that question would have terrified me. Why? Because I have some friends that really love the Lord, but they're also uh, ding-dongs. They're idiots. And, and we run in a circle of people who love to have fun. So I don't know what they might actually say about me. But then, too, uh, I fear that I didn't have a healthy perspective of where my heart actually was. Man, I say I want to be one thing. I want to be this faithful follower of Christ. But am I truly walking in faithfulness? And so I think uh, how your friends and your references answer and talk about you is very telling. They may say your reputation looks like this. I mean, he's the super volunteer who's involved in everything at Watermark. He serves in front lines and students and region and equipped disciple. Man, he's a led, equipped disciple ver versions 1 through 20. I don't even know how, how many we actually have, but he's led all of them. Um, the guy who deeply loves his wife and kids, so much so that he adopted 12 more kids in addition to his six biological kids. He knows amazing amounts of scripture. That's who he is. That he disciples so many guys, he gives his time to pour into to younger men. Man, maybe he's the most humble, most Christ-like guy I know. Now, that's an awesome list. That's a sweet thing. That Those are things that we go, man, he's associated with the things of God. It's a beautiful list of those things. But what we can't do is believe a lie that our association with the things of God equates to a thriving relationship with him. Because what the church of Sardis said, hey, I'm associated with the things of God. Look at our reputation, the things that we've done in the past. But Jesus says, but you're dead. Those things of the past are gone, but you are dead now. And I think this, for, for me especially, is a perfect warning to take heed of. That may we never base the health of a church off of its programs or its appearance. That we must find a church that we would get involved in that is teaching God's word and then bearing his fruit. But Jesus looks at the church of Sardis and says, hey, dead things don't bear fruit. They're dead and they lay six feet underneath the ground. And so I look at this and I see Jesus simultaneously both commends and rebukes them in one sentence. He says, man, you guys have done some good stuff. You've made a name for yourself, but you're dead. From an outsider's perspective, this is Disney. 
that, man, look at the castle, look at the things around. But once you get inside, it's dead. You finally see Mickey, you see Goofy, and you follow them all day, and you follow them back to their dressing room, which is impossible because that place is filled with underground tunnels. But you finally see Mickey, and he takes off his mask, and he's somebody that portrays something else. That it's not who they actually say they are. They aren't Mickey. In the same way that the church maybe appear to have life and be vibrant, but they're not actually who they appear to be. That they are dead and without life. And something that I thought about as I was studying this past week, I was just like, man, what did Jesus just describe to Dallas? This place is active. It appears to be thriving. And everybody here looks good. There's not just one church on the corner, not up on the hill, but there's a ton of churches out here and it looks like everybody's getting after it. This must be an amazing place to live. And not just that, but to be a part of a church. But I think, I think that Jesus may look at churches in America today and say, hey, you guys had a good reputation. There's some things that you did back in the day that were awesome, but ultimately you're dead and there's no fruit here. And that should be alarming for us that, that we should answer those questions. Man, am I someone who's you know riding the coattails of my previous involvement in the church? Or right now, do I have an abiding, fruitful, abundant relationship with Christ? And I think the people closest to you will be able to reveal that answer. Questions like this, are you seeking to love, serve, and encourage your family? Or when you come home from work, do you want to be served and encouraged? Because you've You've worked hard all day. What about how do you, do you seek to treat your coworkers with gentleness and respect? Or do you demand those things from them because of your role? Do you care for your neighbors in an effort to show them the gospel or hope that you never cross paths with them because something will be asked of you? How you answer these types of questions will show you where your heart is and where your faith is and it will show the fruit of the church. That if a church is filled with men and women who are, are self-seeking and, and want pleasure for themselves, you will see a church that inevitably will grow and decay in death. And so I think you can acknowledge, man, that feels heavy and discouraging, but Jesus doesn't leave it as hopeless. Point two just says faithfulness has no finish line. Starting in verse two, it says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. You see, the Sar Sardians had a, a bit of reputation for not completing the things that they started. Not just as it pertained to the church and following Jesus, but simply the, the plebeians of the city, the normal Johnny Dallas and Jane Dallas, um, also were pretty unfaithful as well. That their construction of the Temple of Artemis never actually was complete. That they, they were making a temple to this God, but nothing ever came to full picture of fruition. Uh, secondly, this is a really big one, that they never fully secured their city. That in 549 BC, that when uh, King Cyrus and, and his men were invading the city, to their surprise, they found no one guarding the city walls. Like the, 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 the Sardians had grown so confident and so apathetic because of their confidence, nobody was guarding the city. And so they were easily overtaken. And to make matters worse, that they were conquered a second time. And not just a second time, but the exact same way as the first time. That both times that that city was conquered up on the hill, 
In their apathy and their complacency that led to slumber, they were conquered the exact same way with no one guarding the walls. That's insane. I love how Churchill puts it. I must drop one word of caution for you. For next to cowardice and treachery, overconfidence leading to neglect and slothfulness is the worst of wartime crimes. You see, he gets it. He goes, you can't grow weary. Don't let your guard down because as soon as you let your guard down, they're coming in like ravenous wolves. And so for us, we have to understand, man, am I asleep? Are there parts of my life where I am completely asleep in a slumber? I have no idea what's going on around me. I think something that we can fall into, a massive ditch, especially in America, and especially at Watermark, is that because of our love for the Lord, we want to be a part of so many of his things, his church, his ministries, his people. And what happens is we commit to so many things that we get lulled to sleep by busyness. We say yes over and over and over again until we're overcommitted. Well, what happens because of our reputation? Hey, I'm involved in that. Joey's involved in that. We're involved in these things. We refuse to ask for our commitment back because we want to maintain the reputation. But what happens is, is that results in us going through the motions. That I'm so overcommitted to so many different things, whether it's an area of service or going to hang out with friends, whatever it may be, spending time at a happy hour with coworkers that I get so uh, enamored by all the commitments that I have that I then just start to run through the motions. And what I see that doing is it feeds our complacency and our apathy, and it just leads to a spiritual slumber. That we are involved in so many things that I can't give my heart and devotion to three or four things and be all there, but rather now I'm overwhelmed by 20 or 30 things that have led me to be complacent and apathetic inside of those. In reality, we want Christ to be number one in our lives, but instead what we've done is is made doing things for Christ the number one thing in our life. And I think that that's him speaking to us as believers, but uh, uh, and still in believers, but in the same way, Jesus is speaking to some of our nominal believers that truly believe that an association with the, the things of God can de- uh, depict, per se, uh, a thriving relationship with him. And uh, think about nominal believers that he's saying, don't be regular attenders who sparsely read their Bibles or hardly pray or bear little to no fruit and are fully convinced that by those things that they're faithfully following him. It's kind of like the LinkedIn profile of Christianity that, hey, you've got this resume of things that you do because you think that you're supposed to so that you'll get a new job, but really, you're just going through the motions. It's like the guards of the city of Sardis that uh, if they just sit at their post and watch the invaders come through, all they're doing is smiling and waving and going through the motions. But until they get out of their seat, draw their weapons, and push back the forces and the troops, they haven't done their job. They've only shown up and said, look, my clothes look good. But Jesus is saying, wake up, they're coming. You have to be aware. Man, I will come like a thief in the night. And we must not grow weary then until that day of Christ Jesus returns, we're called to walk in faithfulness. I think the only finish line that is present in our life is the one of death. And we don't know at what time or hour that will come, but we get to be faithful as God's men until then. I love Psalm 90 verse 12. It says, So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. The question begged there is, 
that we use our days wisely and faithfulness to follow him, that we were engaged with him, not just the things of God, but that we were engaged with him, that we were awake in our, our, our faith and our hope and our trust in him was thriving and abundant? Or did we find ourselves only halfway completing the race, that we became apathetic before the task was done? And I think we appropriately have to hear the Lord's tone of warning and challenge, man, wake up, repent, strengthen the things that will remain. But also, hear hope that Jesus hasn't given up on the church. He says, hey, you are dead. But let me remind you, wake up, repent, strengthen those things. He says, remember what you received and heard and keep it and repent. What you received and heard, that's his word, his truth, his commandments. He says, cling to them and do so explicitly. Then he says, strengthen the things which remain. Maybe that's the people there. Maybe that's the, the gatherings that there are some faithful men and women who are gathering there. Strengthen those relationships. And then he says, repent. That we cling to his word and his truth and we're able to strengthen those things and repent. Repent from your deadness. Stop living in the deadness that only proves further decay in the city. He says, come be alive, be watchful, bear fruit. Because that's what genuine faith does. It bears the fruit of godliness. And so I think the question you have to ask for yourself in that, that regard is, man, is there anywhere in my life that I've not woken up to finish what God is calling me to do in faithfulness? Are there things that remain in your life that are unfinished that you need to strengthen? And that leads me to my last point, that we walk in his victory. Verses 4 and 5, they said, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This, to me, has to be the most encouraging piece of these six verses. Christ is declaring, hey, you who have not sold your garments, you will walk with me in white for you are worthy. You see, contextually speaking, the wearing of white robes, especially in Roman times, was a clear sign of victory and honor for that general. That those who were with him were typically the, the surrounding entourage were civic authorities and sometimes friends. But those people weren't there just by association and proximity. The general declared, these are my people. These are the people that run with me and they are mine. Makes me think of a few years ago, uh, I went to a Mavs game and... Uh, as many of us do, we buy the tickets up in the nosebleeds because anybody got time to be, be paying all that money to be sitting courtside. But this was before I was married, and so my wife didn't get to speak into it. But I remember me and my three buddies were sitting up there going, man, I want to be down there. Those are the seats that I want. I want to sit right by the court. But we paid $8 to get in here, so we have to stay up here. But like any normal guy does, at least maybe I'm just sinful, we said, well, what if we just go down there? Maybe we can sit there. So we waited till halftime, and we walked down. Nobody even stopped us. We found uh, four seats that were probably three or four rows right off of the court and sat behind an older lady. And um, sure enough, you know it's coming. The ushers come. They see us. Uh, well, we see them. And my buddy taps the lady on the shoulder in front of us. and was like, hey, when these guys come down here, will you just tell them that we're with you? And the guy, uh, the guy comes down, and he says, hey, can I see y'all's tickets? And uh, we said, well, we're with her. And she turns around and the guy says, oh, hey, Miss Vicky, how are you? And there was obvious, there was a relationship there that Vicky knew this usher. She looks at us, looks back at him and says, hey, they're with me. And in that moment, I felt like I'd arrived. I was like, man, I've, I've graduated. I've been promoted from the nosebleeds to essentially courtside. 
But what's what's huge here is that with three words, she said, they're with me. I had inherited essentially courtside seats all because of who she was, because of whatever power she held. I don't know what she does, what she did, who she is. I just know her name was Vicky, and she allowed me to sit behind her. And the usher said, go, have a great day. So the next 30, 35 minutes, I'm getting to sit behind um, different people like Buddy Heald and DeMarcus Cousins. And I'm going, this is the best day of my life that I came from the nosebleeds to here. And I think that's it. That we get to sit with the Lord because he declares that we are his. That who we know and what we know and how we respond matters. You see, the people around us should know without a shadow of a doubt that we are God's people. Our family, our co-workers, our neighbors. You see, he says there's a few people who have not sold their garments. And he can see them. He can see the people in Sardis who have been faithful. These are men and women who are set apart as faithful. These men and women know Jesus as their Savior. They have not given themselves over to the deadness and decay that existed in Sardis. They know his truth and his commandments, and they're unwilling to compromise to look like the rest of the people found in Sardis, asleep, not doing their jobs, not being faithful. And because of their relationship with Christ and their knowledge of his truth, they walk in humble repentance. They've heard the call to wake up and repent, and they're strengthening the things that remain so they can bear the fruit of godliness. Because then he goes on, he says, They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. That's not, that's not just a glimpse of what is to come. It's a promise. You will join with me. As believers, we're overcomers and conquerors through Christ. That's Romans 8, 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And so what we must understand that anything we try to clothe ourselves with will be insufficient. When Adam and Eve fell before God in the garden, they sought to cover themselves, but it proved to be insufficient. You see, we can't put on anything majestic enough to prove that we are His. It's through His death and His resurrection that He clothes us with His majestic white robes of righteousness, going, they're with me. They get to sit here. Why? Because they're with me. I'm declaring that they are mine. Because we get to put on the newness of Christ. Christ says that because of His love for us, because of His bloodshed, if we have fully surrendered our lives to Him, we too have victory. He writes our names in the book of life and he will never erase them. In certain cities, they would remove the names of the undesirable men and women, the, the, um, the convicted felons, because they were no longer allowed to be there after they've served their sentence. They are written off. But Christ says, because of my love for you, because of my death and resurrection, I will never erase your name from the book of life. And the most amazing thing that comes at the end of this passage, he says, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Is there anything more amazing than to see the Savior of the world stand before the Father and his angels and go, these are mine. He says, I will confess his name. I will confess your names. You will be with me before the Father, and I will vouch for you that you are with me, that you are my people. And I close with this. Verse 6 says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus closes his message to each of these churches with the same statement. If you have an ear, Listen now, take notes. Now that you've heard these things, respond. Go live out your faith in humble obedience. We get to walk in faithful obedience knowing that God asked it of us. He says, be faithful, be humble, be obedient, and repent. End of story. There's nothing left. You see, for us, God has so much more in store for us than just to be mundane men who go through the motions every day and every week 
He wants us to be faithful. He wants to live, us to live life abundantly that he's given us. He wants us to wake up. He wants us to be faithful men in the city, at your office, in your church, and most importantly in this season where we're kind of on lockdown, in your home. Show your kids, show your wife, show your roommates what it looks like to walk in faithful, humble obedience. And so I, I close asking this question. Where do you need to wake up from your slumber and apathy and walk in repentance to be God's faithful man today? And so remember, as a recap from Revelation 3, 1 through 6, that the church of Sardis, we learn that reputations don't bear fruit, that faithfulness has no finish line, and we get to walk in victory with him. It's been fun being with you guys. Talk to y'all soon.